legends. You're listening to the Off-Road Performance Coach Podcast. If you want to be a beast on and off the dirt bike, you have come to the right place. All I ask from you is if you gain some value out of today's episode, please give it a share and tag me on your socials or your Insta story. I'd be super grateful if you'd share the love. Let's get stuck straight into today's episode. Just things for me. Hello, podcasters. Early AM podcast episode recording for myself today. I am off to Melbourne to pick up my van. Just got it uh, fitted out in the back. So that's pretty exciting. I'm super stoked about that. We'll have some content coming on that. Going to do a couple of cool little videos to show you all what we got done in the back of the van to make life easier when we're out on weekends, going motor riding, etc. Today, though, it's the Q&A podcast episode for July. Thank you to everyone who sent questions in and is sending questions in. I really appreciate it. I honestly really enjoy these episodes and answering people's questions and I think just being able to to help people, give them a little bit of value that can improve their experience when they're out either riding or training. So get into it nice and quick today. We've got about six or seven questions. I'll try and keep it as short and succinct as I can. I've got some dot points to go through. So the first question was, do you have any pre-race tips? Which is a really great question. It's You can be the fittest, you'll have heard me say it before, you can be the fittest person in the world, strongest person in the world, and it can all go down the gurgler on race day if you don't have a good race day routine. So just a few super simple ones that you want to be ticking off on race day. I'm a big fan of a thousand calorie breakfast. Some people freak out when they, they hear that, but it's like it's not really that much food. It's not that difficult to get a thousand calories in once you have an understanding of what type of foods potentially have some higher calorie density, etc. The reason for that is, is you guys will know it's pretty hard to get food in when you're out riding the dirt bike or racing the dirt bike. So we want to think about front loading as much energy as we can so we can fuel our efforts and our performance throughout the day. If you just have a tiny breakfast, you start riding, it gets hard to get food in between, whether if it's sprints or motos, it's difficult to get a decent amount of food in and digest it in between those efforts, or you're going out for a massive three-hour race um, and obviously can't eat much food when you're doing that so you're really relying on that what you've had for breakfast to provide that energy to get you through the race so if we think about our overall energy needs for the day if we have a really tiny breakfast it just means that we've got to get more food in through the day and after our riding at the end of the day to reach our target that's going to allow us to recover and and not fall in a heap. So the 1,000-calorie breakfast allows us to do that. 
doesn't have to be exactly a thousand calories. That's what I tell my clients. It doesn't need to be exactly a thousand calories. We just want it to be closer to a thousand calories and further away. An example for you, like the unorganized moto breakfast is to get a bacon and egg sanger from the canteen. If you actually add up the calories in, and mo- like people will, will probably think that that's a bad, uh, in inverted commas, a bad choice. Honestly, it's not that bad when you actually break it down. It's got like a decent amount of protein, has got a little bit of fats in there, but it's got some carbs from your bread, obviously. But if you actually like put an egg and bacon sandwich into a meal tracker, it's only around 350 calories or maybe like 400, um, depending on the size of it, etc. But they're not actually, there's not actually that many calories in like, depending on the size of it, like he might take you three of those to get up to a thousand calories. So it's having an option that is high in calories. I love smoothies. Smoothies are really easy to pack heaps of calories in and get them down and not feel like you've eaten a lot. That's not always a good, uh, achievable option for people. Um, yogurt, muesli, protein powder, honey, you can eat, you can pretty easily get that up close to a thousand calories, 800 calories, and it's not, not too hard, not too difficult to get down. So they're just like some options you can think of, but it's pretty easy to just whatever you have for breakfast that you enjoy, that you like to eat and you know works well for you, just put it in a meal tracker and keep bumping the portion sizes up until it gets close to a thousand calories and then try that. Um, you can split it up into two. It doesn't all need to be at once. You can have like two sort of smaller breakfasts. Um, if the race is a little bit later, obviously that's going to depend what time of day the race is. But general rule of thumb is we want to be getting like a really good amount of calories in for brekkie and high in protein, high in carbs. A little bit of fats is fine too, but we want to be making sure we're getting lots of carbs and lots of protein in to that breakfast. Number two is a warm-up. Goes without saying, but again, most people just don't warm up at all. Especially if you're going into a race that doesn't have a sight lap, then it becomes even more important to do a really good warm-up. So we want to do like around 10 minutes of low intensity cardio. You can just that can just be a jog, like going for a jog up and down um, the car park. Could be a skipping rope, could be a spin bike, a rower, depending on what you've got with you and how organized you want to be. But at the end of the day, it's just going to be low intensity cardio. Then we're going to do some body weight exercises, push-ups, banded pull-aparts, leg swings, split squats, calf raises, a couple of circuits of that. In total, it's probably going to take you about 15, 20 minutes. You should be really ready to go then and not have this big spike going from stone cold to maxed out and blow up in the first couple laps of the race. So warm-up is key. Then when we talk about getting closer to being on the bike and that race starting, two really important things. One is breathing. So for us to ride at our true potential, we need we ride at our true potential when we're fully present in the moment. Where we if we're thinking too far ahead, like what's the result gonna be, what's gonna happen in this race, or too far in the past, oh fuck, I didn't have I trained enough or 
have, was I prepared enough? Did I do this? I did, I do that. That's taking our focus away from the present moment. So the more focused within the present moment we can be, the more in tune we are with the grip our tires have on the ground and the better we will ride dirt bike. So our breath is the number one tool that is right here, right now in this very moment. Your breath cannot, it's not possible for our breath to be in the future. It's not possible for our breath to be in the past. So it's really common for people to get nerves and anxiety on the start line. Easiest tool, tangible tool to overcome that is breath work. Focus on your breathing in through the nose. Out through the mouth, just in and out in a nice slow rhythm and just focus on that air coming in and out of your body. Combine that with a power phrase. I'm a big fan of having a power phrase. Mine is, personally, I'm, I just think three words, three feelings that I want to feel when I'm on the start line. Mine is, I'm calm, I'm confident, I'm ready. There are three things I want to feel. I do not want to feel nervous. I do not want to feel anxious. I do not want to feel tight. Most people will focus on the things they don't want, and we all know that what we focus on is what we get. So if you don't want to feel nervous, if you don't want to feel anxious, like how do you want to feel? That is for you to come up with. Like the easiest way I tell people is come up with three feelings that you want to feel on the start line, and that's your power phrase. You repeat that to yourself in your head over and over again while you're focusing on your breathing. That will allow you to be present and it will allow you to be as confident as you possibly can when you're on the start line. So to recap, 1,000 calorie breakfast, solid warm-up, breathing, breath work, and having a power phrase. They're my biggest pre-race tips. The only other one which I probably didn't put in there is just like, it's and it's even before race day, is just being organized. Like having your shit packed, having your bike prepped, all that stuff, your hydration, you want that done. You don't want to be mucking around with that on race day. You want to be as calm as you can possibly be on race day and be as organized as you can possibly be. Not swapping parts on bikes, lock tighten bolts or mixing your hydration pack five minutes before the race starts. Anything like that, that's going to bring stress into race day. We want to remove all stress. The the lower our levels of stress can be on race day, the easier it's going to be for us to get fully present in the moment. So they're my biggest tips, pre-race tips. Next question was training methods. Do they differ from hard enduro to off-road? The short answer to that one is no, not really. This comes back to this uh, theory that no matter what sport you play or what type of athlete you are, 95% of your gains are just going to come from general physical preparation, just improving your general physical qualities, getting stronger, getting more powerful, improving your mobility, and improving your aerobic engine. Now, obviously, there's some constraints within different sports that will dictate that we might need to be a little bit stronger or have a little bit aerobic capacity a little bit more aerobic capacity or a little bit more explosive depending on what the sport is but the difference between hard enduro to off-road physically and training wise 
I don't think is that different at all. My clients who race hard enduro don't really have that much of a different um, training program to my guys that race off just normal off-road. The race durations are similar. They're probably a little bit longer sometimes, but um, I think the biggest thing, I personally think there's much more of an argument to to stand on for guys that race hard enduro to ha- to be just strong. Like, because you guys are literally having to lift your bike through shit and carry your bike and push your bike. So just having a, a higher level of just strength, being able to lift heavy shit, grip heavy shit, pick it up, pull it, push it, is going to be beneficial for you because you're literally having to do that. When we're racing off-road, we're not having to do that. All of the the way we utilize the strength and the power when we're riding off-road is more the input that we have to give the bike to keep the bike settled in a straight line on rough terrain. You're having to do that in hard enduro as well, but you obviously got this other aspect of hard enduro where you're on the side of a freaking mountain and you're stuck in a ravine and you've got to lift your bike out. So in my mind, that just means there's a much stronger argument for hard enduro riders just to be strong as fuck. So you can, when your bike is stuck and your heart rate's redlined, like you can just lift it out of there. It's easy. So... Yeah, short answer, not really any different, but you definitely want to be strong to be a hard enduro rider would be my advice. Um, Next question, running. I hate it. Is it needed for cardio was the question. (laughs) And are there any tips? So I really like this question. Honestly, well, number one, is it needed for cardio? No, it's not. If you've followed my posts that where I'm talking about energy system training, cardio training, we're really, for us as off-road athletes and riding dirt bikes, the modality we use is just a means to an end. We are simply just trying to improve the capacity of our aerobic engine. That is the goal of our cardio training because our primary goal is to be better on the dirt bike. Our primary goal isn't to get KOMs on Strava and and be and qualify for the Tour de France or be the best runner in the world. We're just using running or cycling or rowing or whatever we might choose to improve our aerobic capacity so we can perform better on the dirt bike, right? So running is definitely not needed. Obviously, running is harder on a little bit harder on the body. I've, I'm f- firmly of the belief if you have a really good strength and conditioning program that includes lifting some decent weights like some heavy weights and some plyometrics where you're providing that stimulus to the limbs, then running should be quite comfortable for you prov- providing there's no like pre-existing injuries or knees or ankles that have been injured that haven't been rehabbed correctly. Um, it should be quite fine and you should tolerate it. Obviously, you can't, you're not just going to go and run a marathon, like do a three hour run. You're probably going to pull up pretty sore the next day. Whereas you could go for a three hour road cycle and 
you'll probably be okay the next day. You might have some tight quads, tight hip flexors, but the the fatigue is not going to be the same. So if you're trying to accumulate a truckload of volume each week, then doing all of that with running is probably not going to be the best approach for most people. However, if you want to be providing some sort of stimulus that's actually improving the capacity of your joints and your lower body because you don't get to ride your dirt bike that often, then running could be a very good option for you. I actually think that's why I love it because it is... I. If you can get to the point where you can go for a 10K run, say 10Ks, you can run 10Ks comfortably and or run for 60 minutes and not know you've done it the next day, I'd hazard a guess that when you go riding on your dirt bike, you're going to recover pretty well after a big day on your dirt bike because you can tolerate a decent amount of loading on the joints in your lower body. So again, it's definitely not needed. I always just tell people... At the end of the day, the best cardio option for you is the one you enjoy the most. But just be aware that they're not all created equal. Running is going to provide more potential for improving the capacity of the limbs in the lower body because it's just simply providing force. It's like a low-level um, impact on the joints, the hips, the knees, the ankles. So over time their capacity to tolerate that is going to go up rowing obviously it's full body so we're using our upper body and our arms lower back etc a lot more than we would be on a road cycle assault bike obviously got the arms as well going to be more full body than again a spin bike or a road cycle so they're not all created equal and i personally believe like in the ideal scenario if you could do a little bit of a little bit of all of them bit of cycling, bit of rowing, bit of running, that's probably going to provide like a really good, well-rounded program that's going to cover all bases and expose you to different environments and different having to breathe in different environments as well and environments where it's not just lower body focused like road cycling, environments where we're bringing in the upper body and the core a lot more as well. Now... I also do believe there's a lot of benefit to doing something that you fucking hate. And honestly, that is why I love running. Because for me, it is a massive mental battle to run. Like, I do not enjoy running. I love going for a mountain bike ride. I obviously love riding my dirt bike. Like, you can find fun in those things. For some people, that's probably road cycling as well. But... For me, running, like the first few Ks of a run most of the time for me is like me just telling myself to stop. It's like, just go home, Ben. You don't have to do this. Like, what are you even fucking doing? And then I get to a point where that goes away and it actually becomes enjoyable. And like the last few K of the of the run, it's it's okay. I'm like in this zone of, of having a good rhythm, focusing on my breathing and actually enjoying it to some extent. I've just, I'm doing this 75 hard challenge thing at the moment, which I'm going to do a podcast about next week. So I've got a pretty good, um, I've strung together a fair few days of running at the moment. Not all back to back, but a lot of them have been back to back. I'm up to about 80K of running in just over two weeks. 
just been doing like an eight 8k run or a seven to eight k run depending on how many hills are in there it takes me 45 minutes so that's been my morning workout for the 75 hard so the first day hadn't like i haven't ran in months properly for ages first run hated it painful calves were tight only got 7k done in 45 minutes so i've done 80k since then since two weeks ago the other day i got 8.2k in 45 minutes and it felt easy comfortable calves didn't blow up actually enjoyed it so it's one of those things you've got to be consistent with it if you're just going to do like one run every like here and there your body is probably not going to adapt to it and it's you probably won't enjoy it but I do think there is some benefit to doing something that you do not enjoy in terms of mental strength and your ability to overcome. Because that's like when we get in that situation on a dirt bike at the end of a race, when we're cooked and we like, you're going to get that point, that point will come up where you're like, I'm done. What am I even doing? That's what endurance is, is overcoming that mental battle and being able to push yourself through that to keep going. So running is good for that, I believe. We can take that to the situation on the dirt bike when when that arises. Tips for running, shoes. I put this on my story the other day, but shoes like get the thickest sole possible. I've, I've got two pairs, Ultras. And I just got a new pair of ASICs. So the Ultra is more of a, like it's obviously not a barefoot shoe because it's got a really thick sole. But in terms of the toe box, it's really, really wide. I've got a wide foot, so I love that. And it's got no heel drop. So there's the heel's not elevated. So, but, so in terms of a barefoot shoe, it's kind of like a barefoot shoe, wide toe box, zero heel drop. But it's got a sole that's about 30 mil thick. So it's super soft. And the ASICs gel nimbus are the same. Really, really soft sole. They've obviously got a bit of a heel heel raise. So my point is having really good shoes makes your life easy. And especially when they're brand new because it feels nice and soft on your feet. Like if you haven't ran, that's probably the first thing that's going to start to blow up is your feet. Like your feet will start to burn. So having good shoes will help overcome that to some extent. Two, really good warm-up. So calf raises, tibialis raises, leg swings, doing a really good warm-up, important. And then stretching down after. So just the basics, couch stretch for the hip flexors, some sort of pigeon or 90-90 stretch for the glutes, really important, especially when you're first starting out. You're probably going to tighten up after a decent run. So warm-up properly, stretch down after are my biggest tips for running other than just getting a really good pair of shoes. So next question, protocol for building muscle post-injury to overcome limb atrophy. So I've spoken a little bit about this on a couple of other podcasts, just in the terms of if you've experienced an injury, you will know uh, what this particular person is talking about. Like very quickly, if you have an immobilized limb, it's the muscle mass is going to drop off really quickly. Say if you had a uh, an arm or a leg in plaster for six weeks it's the muscle mass is going to drop off hugely even like a a knee 
Like if you have knee surgery, you can pretty much start training it or you're doing some form of training like basically the day after surgery in terms of like keeping the quad activated and trying to move it. You're obviously not putting a lot of load through it, but you're still using it. And even in that case where you're still using it, but it's obviously not getting the load that you would have through your normal leg because you're favoring your good leg, that atrophy is going to be huge. You're going to lose muscle mass very quickly. So what what can you do? What are the protocols? The main ones is just, it's the same for any type of muscle building or any type of hypertrophy is putting on muscle. So if that's what we wanna do, we wanna hypertrophy that limb. There's a few rules around hypertrophy that need to be followed. There's no way or like no two ways about it. Number one, is nutrition. We need to be getting in adequate protein. So I always recommend two grams of protein per kilo of body fat, up uh, per kilo of body weight for people. Um, you could even go higher than that. Like some people that are really, really trying to put on hypertrophy bodybuilders will go way higher than that. They'll be like three, four grams, which is pretty crazy. But like two gram is a good, two grams per kilo of body weight. As an example, I'm 80 kilos roughly, so that's 160 grams of protein per day. I like to use that figure because it's just a good round figure. It's easy to calculate, and most people will undershoot it. So I prefer, if anything, for it to be a little bit higher because if I set someone's protein at 160, most commonly they're going to come in at 145 or 150. So that's probably pretty good. If it's a little bit more, that's fine too. So number one, need to be getting enough protein. Number two, you need to be in a slight calorie surplus to put muscle on. If you're in a big, like a substantial calorie deficit, it's and especially a protein deficit and a calorie deficit, it's going to be very difficult. It's literally impossible to put muscle mass on. So you need to be addressing that first. You should be addressing that first anyway, because if you've got, if you're working with someone that knows that's, like familiar with injury rehab at like a good physio or someone like that, like that is the first thing they should have advised you to do if you've had a broken limb or you've had a surgery or something is you like obviously when you've had a broken limb or you've had surgery and had ligaments or tendons regrafted or whatever it is, like they're literally regenerating. That's the healing process is for your bone or your ligament or your tendon or whatever that the injury might have been is literally has to grow back together for you to heal so again to do that it needs adequate nutrients so nutrition should be part of the that rehab and recovery process from the get-go so the next one is understanding what is the primary driver of hypertrophy so a lot of people will say it's volume and honestly i've probably in the past i've uh I've prescribed people to do an extra set and sometimes like sometimes I do too um, still do this but is provide like say it's like three sets of 10 real basic rep sets and rep scheme three sets of 10 but you're going to do a fourth set on the right hand leg because that's the injured side so you're going to get an extra 10 reps on that right hand side that's fine to do 
But you need to understand that volume itself, just because you did 10 extra reps on that side, doesn't mean that it's necessarily going to drive up hypertrophy because the primary driver of hypertrophy is not volume. It is how many of the reps that we complete in each set that are taken basically to failure or within two reps of failure. The closer we go to failure and recruit more muscle fibers and create more tension in the muscle, the more we drive hypertrophy. So this is why one, volume itself doesn't drive hypertrophy and two, rep ranges don't really matter. You can do 30 reps, but if if you're using a weight that you could have done 40, you're not driving hypertrophy. You can do two reps on a really heavy squat or a really heavy deadlift, but if it's with a weight that you could have done seven reps, then you're not driving hypertrophy. So it doesn't really matter what rep range you choose. What matters is you take that those reps as close to failure as you possibly can. So what does that mean? You're going to have to fucking grind and work really hard. So if you're rehabbing a limb, the like it the easiest way or for want of a better term in inverted commas, safest way sometimes is going to be using machines. And that's why bodybuilders a lot of the time use machines because to take a squat as an example within two reps of technical of like proper legit failure you're gonna have to really know what the hell you're doing with a barbell on your back to take a squat to within two reps of failure whereas you can sit on a leg extension machine and take your quad to failure and it's pretty easy to do that it's super safe there's no risk of injury so depending on what the injury is including some machine work can be beneficial in that instance but the number one thing is at the end of the day whatever you choose to do whether it's machines whether it's um free weights whatever you're choosing to do whatever rep range you're choosing to complete then you need to be taking the reps as close to failure as possibly as possible for that for to drive hypertrophy in that limb so my recommendation is somewhere in the 8 to 12 rep range or even up to 15 is a good rep range where you're going to be able to use like a decent amount of weight. Like the weight's not going to be crazy heavy, but it's also not going to be like a three kilo load. Um, But you're going to get a decent amount of reps in there. So you're kind of covering all bases. You're getting a heavy load. You're getting a decent amount of volume. But within that amount of volume, within that sort of 8, 12, or 15 rep range, you should be able to take it really close to failure. So nutrition and then understanding what drives hypertrophy. And it's not necessarily volume. It's taking the reps as close to failure as possible. So you need to be working like really hard on that limb and taking it as close to failure as you possibly can to drive hypertrophy next one is another really good question channeling motivation to get back into training what should i do so i did do a podcast on motivation a couple of months ago i think but number one is you really do just have to understand that motivation is absolute bullshit 
if you're expecting to be motivated to start something or to get back on the bandwagon of training or eating healthy or whatever your thing might be, you'll probably be waiting for the rest of your life. And I don't mean to be rude when I say that, but that you talk to any successful person in the world, a successful athlete, successful business person, the days that they don't feel like doing shit are more common than the days they wake up feeling motivated. The difference is they don't take no for an answer. They get up and they complete their habits. Whether they feel good or whether they feel like shit, they do them. Now, the intensity that they do them at might be different. Like, that's why, like, if we're talking about training, like, it's good to use an RPE scale. If you're feeling a little bit unmotivated and a bit cooked, then doesn't mean you don't train or you skip the session. It just means that that day might be a really easy day for you. You're still going to train. You're still completing the habit of training. It's just going to be at a regressed intensity to suit your level of recovery that day. So number one is that. It's understanding that it's not always there. Number two, I would say, this is one thing I've learned out of committing to this 75 hard challenge, is commit to something. Maybe it's not the 75 hard challenge. Maybe it's your own version of the 75 hard challenge. But like I said, I'm going to do a more in-depth podcast on this 75 challenge, 75 hard challenge thing next week. But the whole idea of it is you're committing to a list of daily actions that you are putting in front of everything else. So you, it doesn't have to be the 75 hard thing, but you can choose your own list of actions and those lists, those actions are going to be things that matter to you. The things that matter to you and things that you know if you do them every day for the rest of your life, you're going to end up in a really good place, a place where you would like to be, a place where you can achieve things that you really, really want to achieve and do things that you really, really want to do. So you get to choose what those things are. When you actually commit to it, you are telling yourself that when you wake up, no matter what fucking happens, you are going to complete the things on that list without fail. It means you're telling yourself you're prioritizing those things above all else. So when that choice comes to sit down on the couch and open up Instagram or open up YouTube, you're going to say, hang on a minute, I haven't completed everything on my list yet. Turn the phone off, I got to tick off my list. It sounds so simple, but honestly, I have found just that to be a really beneficial thing for myself is just committing to this challenge and saying I'm going to do it. And I'm actually doing it with my wife. So having a partner there is also helpful, I think, because we're both doing it together. And like for me, like obviously I've already developed the habit of basically training every day, but I am also human. 
and I have shit that comes up that holds me back and takes my focus away from doing the things again that I know I should be doing to achieve the results I want to achieve long term. So committing to this challenge for me has been about creating that list of the things I'm going to do every single day and I put them in front of everything else. So that means I need to be fucking organized. I need to get up early and get my shit done. I need to be prepared so I don't get to the end of the day and I've got three things left on my list and I'm like, fuck. The reason that happens is because I wasn't prepared. It's because I was like literally because I was lazy. So if I know what I need to get done and I'm prepared, it means I go to bed early. It means I get up early. It means I do the things I need to do so I can tick that list off the next day. And you know what? That feels fucking good. That helps you feel motivated. At least that's my experience anyway. <clears throat> so I'm going to do a more in-depth episode on that, this whole 75 hard thing and I guess my little version of it because um, I have tweaked a couple of little things which the, the 75 hard zealots will probably not uh, approve of but like I say it's not about you don't have to do what someone else is doing it's figuring out what you want to do that's, and what your list is that's going to allow, allow you to get the result that you want to get so one more question and I apologize to the gentleman that sent this in. He messaged me as, as a DM on Instagram. And honestly, I can't freaking find it. I didn't write it down. I've got a rough idea of what the question was, but I can't find it in my messages. So if you're listening to this, mate, I hope this answer gives you some clarity. If it doesn't, just send me a message again and I will help you out. His question was, he just finished racing Hatter. He was experiencing lower back, not necessarily pain, but fatigue in the last half of the race and couldn't stand up, had to sit down a lot of the time, and he wondered what he could do to overcome that. So I did ask him what he had done as his preparation, what sort of strength training done, and from memory he said that especially in the last month or so leading up to their race, there was very little strength training. There was a little bit of cardio and a lot of riding on the bike. So number one, again, it's kind of hard to, I guess, give a definitive answer without watching the person ride. But number one is riding technique. You need to be able to hold a solid attack position in a hips back neutral sort of core position where you're placing the load into the hamstrings and then the glutes. Now, to be able to do that for four or five hours in the sand on a track that's got that ends up having meter deep whoops in places, you need to be really strong. That's just there's no two ways about it. You need to be able to get into that position for a start. So you need to have decent riding technique. If you don't just have the foundational riding technique dialed in, then that's probably some low-hanging fruit. Work on your body position on the bike. And then the next thing is, okay, well, how do I actually maintain that position for five hours in the sand? The answer to that question is having a really good foundational level of strength. So again, it's a super common thing I see when pe most people do train. They go 
cardio. That's a good thing. Like we definitely want to be training cardio. Most people will start cycling or go for a run. That's great. Not saying don't do that. Definitely do that. Most people will go to the gym and they'll do squats. They'll do split squats. They'll do step ups. They'll do walking lunges. They'll do every freaking squat variation under the sun and they will not train their posterior chain. Whether that's just through ignorance or because someone's told them that deadlifts are bad and dangerous. Now, you don't just have to do deadlifts. There's heaps of other ways to train your posterior chain. If you've got a commercial gym, you can use a GHD or a back extension machine, hamstring curls. There's lots of machine work you can do to condition your posterior chain as well. It doesn't just have to be deadlifts. But at the end of the day, if you just watch someone ride a dirt bike at Hatter in the sand, the position they are in, it is like the bottom of a deadlift. It's like an RDL. You're spending majority of your time around that track standing. Obviously, there's you are sitting a lot, but once that track gets rough, if you sit down, your life is going to be hell. You need to be able to stand up to ride through those whoops and stay on top of those whoops. So you need to be strong in a bent over hinge like position so we want to train that bent over rows pendlay rows back extensions ghd hip extensions rdls all of those types of movements to strengthen the posterior chain lots of core work too obviously super important as well mixing that in with your all of those like your split squats your squats your step ups they're all not saying don't do them either it's all we just want to have a balance. So we're training the muscles in the back of the body as much as we are the front. Combine that with some core, some upper body strength work, you'll be kicking goals. Again, to probably harp on about this, which I've mentioned in uh, plenty of other podcasts, is I think most people overestimate the volume or what they have to do in the gym to actually build strength and to maintain strength like you can literally do 245 minute if you've if you do it consistently year round i'm not talking about doing a six-week block coming into hatter i'm talking about training in the gym year round you do 245 minute strength sessions like proper strength sessions every single week you'll be a strong mofo you will have a really good foundational level of strength so when you layer your cardio in around that and you layer your bike time, get plenty of good bike time in, you're going to be able to tolerate that. You don't have to live in a gym. You don't have to be going to the gym five days a week to get strong enough to race dirt bikes. You just need to be doing the right exercises at the right level of intensity to get the result you want to get. So that would be my biggest tip there. Hope that answers that one for you, mate. Like I said, I can't find the freaking question so my apologies that is it for the questions today again thank you to everyone that sends them in i really appreciate it i like i say i do enjoy these q a episodes and we'll get another one up in august so anyone who's got any questions at all that they would like to get onto that one i'll put i'll put the little thing on my instagram story up when we get into august and we'll get the next episode Next Q&A episode done. For now, we got 
the next episode next week is going to be the 75 hard challenge one. I'm going to go a little bit more in depth into what the challenge actually is, how I'm doing it, and a little bit around the nutrition tips that I'm implementing to, in a controlled manner, to pull my calories back a little bit and see a little bit of a drop on the scale, get that body fat down. Until then, guys, have a great weekend. Hope you get to shred some trail, and I'll see you on the next episode. Bye-bye.